There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. Welcome to F1Weekly.com. My name is Clark Rogers. I'm the host of the program. I'll be joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 1022, December 11th, 2023, Nasser. Thank you, sir. Today we take Formula One from Baku Street to Wall Street and present Buy, Sell or Hold. Thank you, Payne Weber. But wait, there's more. Alonso is numero uno. We shall explain muy gladly. And now back to the hombre whose stock symbol is MCMO. Thank you, Nasser. On today's program, there it is, the 2023 FIA prize-giving gala was in Baku, and it was a big party. British Formula 4 champion Louis Sharp wins the coveted Henry Surtees Award. Fernando, as we know, is el más macho de España. He wins the F1 Action of the Year Award, which he's won in the past. LCH, and of course, there's always some kind of excitement. LCH, after receiving his third place award, gave it away to an adoring fan. At least, that's the big rumor. And, ladies and gentlemen, this week's Interview is USF Pro 2000 race driver Nicola Giafone from Brazil. So that's going to be very exciting, very, very hip. And of course, I must remind everybody that we do need your contributions to keep this program on the air. Just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab. You know, you'll want to. Nast, welcome to the studio. I know you're all pumped up about the gala the missing trophy, all the fun Fernando was having praising his number two, Perez. Well, I have not had the immense pleasure of watching this um, thing on TV or YouTube, but I do intend to in the next few weeks, uh, next few days. Did you enjoy it? And apart from Alonso, what else uh, stood out for you, sir? Well, it's interesting, you know, there's a lot of awards, a lot of different formulas, a lot of new upcoming young drivers winning really important little awards here and there from the FIA that keep everybody happy. I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched a few snippets. Of course, the part mostly about Fernando being the dude that was everybody loved so much. I was really surprised that it was in Baku. Well, you know, throw the money and they will come. What I want to know is this. Was Lewis Hamilton in a tuxedo or was he dressed up like a Jamaican gigolo as he showed up at the Queen's Box at Wimbledon some years ago? His outfit was very apropos, in black, a long, long coat, and I thought he looked fine. I think some of his fashion picks lately have been pretty good. I mean, the Burberry stuff is outstanding and very tasteful, Nasser. That's good to hear. Quite a change there. What did Max have to say? Max, he says, I'm the winner, and be careful because we'll be doing this all over again in a year. And two years. And three years. Yes, exactly. Very good, very good. Okay, sir, last week, the Formula One was turned upside down with hints and allegations. Then within 48 hours, it was like it never happened. This is what we call hunting for wolf. According to a report in Business F1, Rival teams believe that the Mercedes boss is gaining access to information that is unavailable to other teams, thanks to his wife, Susie Wolf's position within F1. As you know, she is head of FIA Academy, the all-female series, which has been a replacement for Formula W. So FIA, being FIA, launched an investigation. 
Now sitting in the palatial studios across the pond, we have no inside line. Then shockingly, this was really a really surprise. At first I thought when I saw on the social media, this is a joke. All team appeared to be in agreement and issued a copycat statement in defense of Susie Wolf, her husband Toto and Mercedes F1 team. The statement read, and I quote, we can confirm that we have not made any complaint to the FIA regarding the allegation of information of a confidential nature being passed between an F1 team principal and a member of FOM staff. End quote. The FIA investigation was dropped as soon as it was started, within 48 hours. They did not even seek DNA evidence. According to Peter Windsor, the publication Business F1 that broke the news has closed ties with Bernie Ecclestone. Peter thinks it's Bernie doing Bernie things. The publication Business F1 was founded just like the F1 magazine by a gentleman by the name of Tom Rubithon. Now this is the same gentleman who many moons ago wrote a story saying how Luca di Montezemolo had instructed Jean Todd to hire Mika Hakkinen as teammate to Michael Schumacher. According to Tom's tale, Jean Todd told Luca that Mika had already re-signed for McLaren, only for Luca to find out later that was not the case. And that was the beginning of the end of the excess of power between Michael Ross and Jean Todd at Ferrari. As per this story, he also wrote about a senior executive from an advertising company uh, who was invited to uh, Ferrari at the request of uh, Luca di Montezemolo that when he got there, basically Jean Todd told him that we already have signed up with Marlboro or whoever it was. We don't need your services. So who knows what the truth is. But this gentleman, Tom Rubithon, has been in the news a few times. All the teams coming in support of Susie Wolf and Mercedes and of course Tote is very, very rare in Formula One. As one journalist once wrote that Formula teams cannot even agree on what day of the week it is. So this was a real surprise. And as you and I tested, originally I was thinking, where there is smoke, there is fire. But now it looks like someone is trying to pass caca as Kool-Aid. And I say, if you're going to accuse somebody, at least have some evidence in a bottle or a Vaseline jar like Henry Ford had Thomas Edison's dying breath captured in a test tube, which is on display, believe it or not, at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. This is what I call attention to the last detail. Mr. Rogers, you have seen a few controversies in Formula One before. What's your take on this high fever that came and went faster than Luca Bedour's F1 career at Ferrari? I mean, it got my attention pretty quickly. As you said, I texted you about this uh, last week and because it makes perfect sense. If you read it, indeed he does and he is privy to undisclosed information that the other team principals will not get. And nobody's denied that. The only thing is that the consensus is we all don't care. Leave us alone. And everybody is fine with Toto and Susie because they're such a loving holding hands, skipping down the road kind of couple. Yes, very true. Okay. But, you know, this is off-season, so we need some uh, hanky-panky or spicy menudo to stir things up. Absolutely. We always need a little dirt to keep us alive during the winter months. It was a good one. I have to admit, I bit right away. I was going, Toto, what? Oh, my goodness. But, once again, it was a non-story, and you get... A lot of non-stories during the off-season. No, you're right. It was a very serious accusation at a very high level, and it obviously got my attention too. Okay, sir, now moving on to your all-time favorite racing outfit, Alpine, a.k.a. Renault. In the ever-changing landscape of Alpine management, we have some same as it ever was. Bruno Fama, the ex-Pujol Le Mans boss, has said he will stay as interim team principal till the other Luca, Luca Di Meo, gives him instructions to pack it up and call U-Haul. Bruno became boss of Alpine F1 at Spa last year after Otmar Safnauer and Ellen Permain were shown the door. And Ellen Permain was there when the team was known as Benetton. 
As we have seen since the changes were made, Alpine has not exactly done what Mr. Morrison would call a break on through through the other side. Yes, they won at Hungaro Ring with Esteban Ocon a few years ago, but moving forward, I do not see this team finishing in the top three in the championship in 2024 or 25. They have not really done much in the hybrid era, something Christian Horner and Dr. Marco will explain gladly. The wholesale changes in 2026 would be their last chance alone. The days of wine and roses and René Arnoux are long gone. Sir, any comments on your spiritual home team? Well, there's always hope, of course. They are going through some kind of Francophilic problem, but... Listen, they have two French drivers, which I think is really cool, and they could they can use that to their advantage if they're smart and cunning. But also there's news that a former Ferrari principal will be, and he was caught, buying a Italian-French dictionary. But he should be taking over the team, from what I've heard. Are we talking Mattia Benotto? Exactly. I didn't want to throw out any names, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, uh, his name has been linked with that team before. And uh, what I'm thinking that if the F1 fraternity keeps on stalling Michael Andretti's um, effort to get an 11th team, maybe Alpine should sell their team to Michael Andretti. But, you know, time will tell which way we are going on this issue. Now, you mentioned a few weeks ago, sir, you the sprint races are growing on you. So are you okay with sprint action now? The problem is they might they might be going in the wrong direction because you know they now they want to spice up what was originally spicing up things you know so they want to spice up the spice with and I know reverse grids are, are I think Lewis Hamilton has now changed his mind and voted for reverse grids and if LCH says it's a go my goodness where have we gone now where have the flowers gone Nasser yes. Okay, Formula One has announced the six venues that will host F1 sprint events next year, 2024. Austria and Brazil are set to host their sprint, third spring weekends, with Austin and Qatar returning for a second year. The new ones are China and Miami, joining the lineup for the first time. No Spa, no Monza. Perfect tracks for fast and furious sprint action, in my very humble opinion. But be it sprint in Baku or sprint in Budapest, we all know it will be charge of the Red Bull at the front when Justin Bieber or Bridget Bardo waves the checkered flag. Any particular track the host would like to see sprint races at? Seriously. I honestly really think we should get rid of them, but I don't I think we're stuck with this now. So, you know, they're they're fine. I think we should have one at Monza. The biggest issue is if you have a big crash in the sprint race, that could very well affect whether you're in what we call the Grand Prix. So there's a lot of things to think about. And this is, you know, this is adding a lot of cost to the teams. Ask Gunther Steiner about effing this and effing that, because he'll tell you so many crashes. And now with sprint races, that extra variable is added and it always hits you in the pocketbook. Yeah, you know what they can do. You remember the Pro Car series of that beautiful BMW M1? Exactly. Now, that was 1979, great era, and that was a good idea. Yeah, and you know what can be done? Maybe they should do is do a sprint race with a spec car that everybody has the same car. You know, it could be a... Obviously, you know, if you have a Mercedes, Ferrari drivers will not drive, so maybe they can get a brand that is not involved in Formula 1. Uh, maybe like an accurable Honda is there, but they'll have to find something, a Mazda Miata or, um, you know, Porsche is not in Formula 1, Porsche 911, identical cars, and then we're going to find out who's got the beef and who's got, uh, you know, fat. You know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. I think you're talking about competition. And I was thinking, remember the popularity of the Chevy Camaro at Le Mans, 24 Heures du Mans? Oui, monsieur. They should make 20 of those cars and they could use that in the sprint race because then we would have a sprint race with comic relief. 
Yeah, or we can have 20 Mustang Sallys, you know, that would be fantastic. But you know, no matter what they do, the scenery is going to be the same at the front. It will be the same people, Max, Lewis, Fernando, Charles Leclerc. I don't think Kevin Magnussen is going to win from pole position. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's not going to change the grid, but I mean, at least lighten it up a little bit. That's the only thing. I think we need a little more comedy in the sprint race. Because because Max is so serious, you know, he just wants to dominate everything. Well, good for him, man. And he probably will. Oh, he's going to. Do- if he doesn't, then we, we know he's leaving, so. Yeah. Okay, now, leaving. Hasta la vista to Barcelona. The politics of dancing a regional pride will likely see the Spanish Grand Prix move from Barcelona to street circuit in the nation's capital, Madrid, which is also home of the Science Clan. The Barcelona circuit has been hosting the Spanish Grand Prix since 1991, when Gerhard Berger took pole position in a McLaren Honda, Ricardo Patrese set the fastest lap in a Williams Renault, and his teammate R. Nige won the race. And it was here in 1996 in the rain when Michael Schumacher took an uber-dominating win for the first time in a red car, and it was the clash of the two silver cars that opened the way for Max to win on his Red Bull debut. And that tradition is now going nonstop like a runaway bullet train. Sir, would you like to see the race move uh, from um, Barcelona to a street circuit in Madrid? You know, I think they could probably do both races as long as we have Sainz and Fernando on the grid. I know Barcelona is such a tradition. I hate to see it go. You know, the winds. It's so fun. It's a nice track. I've been there. It's easy to get to. There's a train service to that. But, you know, you can only have uh, so many races. I'm not a big fan of street races. Maybe they can go back to Harama, uh, which is a circuit near uh, Madrid, and they used to race Grand Prix cars. But, you know, powers that be are going to do what they want to do. Little people can do little. Okay, sir, now we come to our main feature. The season on Wall Street, where we look at each driver in every team and whether their services should be buy, sell, or hold. We will start with bottom fishing, with the team that finished 10th in the Constructors' Championship. Number one from the bottom, Haas F1, main sponsor, MoneyGram. Hope they're sending them some money on a regular basis. I would rate both drivers, Nico Hulkenberg and Kevin Magnussen, as whole. The train to a top team departed long time ago for both drivers. But both are fast and talented enough to get a ride on a Greyhound, which is what Haas F1 is. Leave the driving to us and still be in the show. Hulkenberg delivered 9 points to the team and Kevin Magnussen 3. Mr. Rogers, if you were Charles Schwab, how would you rate these two youths? Definitely very, very good considering the budget, the Haas team. I think Haas, to be honest with you, is extremely lucky to have Nico Hulkenberg. I think it's such a plus, and I know Gunther Steiner knows that. And to hold these two drivers makes perfect sense. The only issue here is bark of the team principal is worse than his bite. Take a listen. I fucking had enough of both of you. You let the fucking team down, me down, which I protected you all the time. And I'm not fucking going into who is right and who is wrong. I don't want to hear, he moved, he that moved, and all that fucking wank, you know. Gene spends hundred fucking million a year of his own fucking money, which fucking wants to pull the plug and let everybody down because you are two fucking idiots. I have not more to fucking say to you guys. And if you don't like it, I don't need you here. Do not come back, please. What was that? Kevin just fucking smashed the door. That's not acceptable. Saber Alfa Romeo was ninth in the championship with one driver from Finlandia and the other from China. In Valtteri Bottas, they have a very experienced, good team player and race winner. The team will now race for two seasons as Sauber, 
no Alfa Romeo branding till Audi comes on board in 2026. You know, I read several times and I was waiting all day yesterday. They were going to announce the new name on the 10th of uh, December, but I have not seen any announcement from Sauber. But I would rate Botas as buy. In Guan Yu Zhou, they bring the first Chinese driver in Formula 1. Even though he did not win the Formula 2 or Formula 3 championship, meaning he will not be establishing the Ming dynasty in motorsports, the reason behind his presence in the team is cash is king in China also. Surprise, surprise. The team hoping for a large marketing opportunity, which I do not see in terms of branding on the car, such as Alibaba Sauber or P.F. Chang Sauber. I would rate him as whore. The score at Sauber was Botas 10 points, Joe 6. Now we move on to Alpha Tauri. The once Minardi team, famous for launching the career of Machismo, has become Piedmont Airlines of Formula 1, a name change every few years. They finished 8th in the championship with drivers Yuki Sonoda, Arigato to Honda, and because of this, he will be rated whole. The Honey Badger has done a boomerang and back in business in the Red Bull can. For a small team, he is definitely a buy. The score at Alpha Tauri, Yuki 17 points, and of course Daniel Ricciardo 6 points, and he came after De Vries was uh, kicked out, and De Vries is now a distant memory, but I'm happy for him that he has got a good ride with Toyota in the WEC program. Moving up, next, Williams. Team Willie was 7th in the Constructors' Championship. The team is now owned by Doralton Capital, based in New York City. Too bad for Logan Sargent. Claire Williams is no longer there. Otherwise, she'll be singing, Logan is my hero. Logan is quick, won karting championship in Europe, and proved himself both in Formula 2 and 3. It is correct that he raced all season long and did not outqualify his teammate even once. I will not rate him a failure at this time. My rating on him is whole, as most likely any replacement any replacement will take time to get up to speed, just like he is experiencing. I definitely do not see the second coming of Max from the feeder series in the next few years, or maybe ever. The ace in the team is Alex Elborn. He is definitely a buy. He has done a very good job this season. But Mr. Rogers, with all due respect to Alex, this is just my personal opinion, and I'm sure there will be some disagreement. I think as good as he looks now as team leader, the last thing he should do is replace Sergio Perez at Red Bull. I have a strong, very strong feeling history will repeat itself. The score at Williams was very much in his favor. Elborn 27 points, Logan 2. Question for you, sir, is if you were Elborn's Jerry Maguire, would you move him to the Temple of Doom, also known as the second seat at Red Bull? No. I mean, uh, the reason why Albon is thriving and flourishing at Williams is because he's not under that huge weight called Max to the Max. He does great without that pressure. If he goes back to the pressure cooker, I mean, it's just it's just going to be the same thing. And all of a sudden, boom, LCH hits Albon in the same year again. So, no, no, no. Stay where you're comfortable. He's smiling a lot. If you remember that he wasn't smiling at all ever when Max Verstappen was next to him. Yeah, if he goes back to that pressure cooker, he'll be Rice Aroni in six minutes. Okay, Alpine, sixth in the championship. Being a French team, having two race-winning homeboys, it's not a bad idea, so I will rate both of them as whole. The, manage will, <laughs> the management will be rated as avoid. Pierre Gasly won the Battle of Escargos, scoring 62 points compared to 58 for Esteban Ocon. Now we come to the top five, starting with Aston Martin, the mean green machine in the hands of machismo. Fernando Alonso is a very strong buy for the team if Lawrence wants his team to win. Alonso has done a total eclipse of the heart on Lawrence's little lamb. Lance is a sell, but we all know he will be there till the stars are burnt away and Daddy has gone away from the paddock. The score, Alonso 206 points, Lance 74. More embarrassing than the situation at Red Bull. Now we come to McLaren 4th. 
Both drivers strong by. Lando Norris, 6th in the championship, 205.7 podium appearances in 2023, and he is fairly confident he will get his first win next year. It all depends on Max uh, DNF, I think. Oscar Piastri, 97 points, placed him 9th at the championship. Two podiums during the season, plus the high of the season, winning the sprint race in Qatar over Max. A serious up-and-up day for Land Down Under and Oscar Piastri. I think Dr. Marco seriously missed this talent, just like he overlooked Kimi for Enrique Bernoulli. Talk about investing in junk bond. Now we come to the top three. Ferrari third. They better get going pronto. Charles Leclerc does not want to be in the list of great talents who drove for Ferrari but did not win the championship, like Fernando Alonso, Sebastian Vettel, and our favorite new motivation, Jean Alessi. And we can even go back to drivers like Chris Heyman and Jackie X. I would rate both Carlos Sainz Jr. and Leclerc as by. Carlito kept his cool and delivered a sensational victory in Singapore this season, the only race Red Bull did not win. Sir, do you concur with my assessment of these two drivers at Scuderia Ferrari? Absolutely. Leclerc has definitely signed a big contract and he's expecting really more focus on the car than the marinara sauce. So there's a, there's a lot going on. But I feel, you know, now we're going into a, a fresh Frédéric Vasseur season. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be good. And I think they will perform. I mean, and you know, the other thing is LCH, you know, he put, he had a great speech, talked about how he's got his full faith in Mercedes delivering the Machismo W15. And boy, you know, I really hope it happens because if he doesn't get what he wants, there's going to be some sour looking faces around April. Well, speaking of Mercedes, the past and future of the team is still one of the strongest pairings on the grid. I would rate both drivers as strong by. Russell's youth is very well complemented by his teammate, the most successful driver of all time, at least for now. The score at Mercedes this season, LCH 234 points, George 175. Now we come to Red Bull. Sergio Perez, I would rate him hold. He won a couple of races and finished second in the championship, and that will be the fate of 99% of the drivers at Red Bull as long as Mad Max is driving the other car. At Red Bull, there is really not much you can do when you are number two. Finally, the new triple world champion, Max Verstappen, definitely a very strong buy. He recently said his three best wins this season were Miami, Sanford, and Suzuka, which was right after their only loss of the season in Singapore. And you know, recently Max was asked something about the future and he's how the cars would be in 10 years and the system and this and that. He said, the only thing that won't be happening in 10 years is I will not be here. So I think he has his future planned out and we wish him all the best. Okay, now we come to Triple Play Formula One. In 2023, Max took his third consecutive championship. In the history of Formula One racing, very few drivers have done a triple play or more. Juan Manuel Fangio was the first to do so. He won his first championship in 1951 with Alfa Romeo and with different teams went four in a row from 1954 to 57. And when I say triple play, we're talking about three in a row or more. Fangio had a total of five championships. The next driver to win three championships or more in a row was Michael Schumacher, who won five in a row from 2000 to 2004. What a run that was. He won two other championships in 1994 and 95 with Benetton. Sebastian Vettel continued Deutschen domination of Formula 1 by winning four championships in a row from 2010 to 2013, and I thought it will continue into the hybrid era. And to keep the host happy, I would like to remind everybody those championships were powered by Renault. These days people are asking Car 44, where are you? But it was not too long ago that LCH went four in a row from 2017 to 2020, and he has three other championships to match Schumacher's record of seven. What say you, amigo? Well, we don't know what's going on really deep down in the bowels of Formula One, but I know one thing, Jean Tut came out and said, you know what, that Singapore Grand Prix should have been 
canceled. So now that he has put his foot into the masa pudding, there's going to be some more stuff coming out about that. And you're right, you know, Renault-powered Benettons. Remember that, 94, 95? And that's a really good example about what Red Bull has to do because in 1994, Schumacher won with a Ford. And then the following year, we went with the, the new Renault uh, V10, which was exciting. And both championships back-to-back. So Red Bull will have to do that. And uh, we'll see if they can match Benetton in those days. Uh, once they go on th- the Ford Blue Oval, it's a better idea plan. Yes, time will tell. Okay. Okay, so um, speaking of Michael Schumacher, shall we do a quickie on a Jägermeister and come back? That's a good idea. I'll get two shots going, Nasser. And of course, this is for medicinal purposes only. So we'll be back after this brief message. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Fisichella, and you are listening F1 Weekly. Welcome back to F1Weekly.com. Clark Rogers here, your host. And now, as we spin the globe and go around the world with Motorsports Mondial, with the king, the sultan himself, Nasser Hamid. Thank you, sir. And we're going to start our tradition uh, during the off-season, as long as we have some, an interview. And this is with a young kid from Brazil, Nicolas or Nicola Giaffone. His papito used to race in IRL. And this conversation took place at Indianapolis Motor Speedway a few weeks ago when they were testing. Uh, he had just won a championship here in the U.S. in the, the Road to Indy ladder system. And he told me that, you know, if you win that championship, they pay for the next season, which is, would be his uh, U.S. Formula 2000. And he told me, he said flat out, I have to win this championship. If I don't, then I'm going back to Brazil and my racing career is over. So he's a very determined, very good racer. We wish him all the best and hope members of F1 Weekly Familia enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Senor Giaffone. Okay, folks, I'm here at Indianapolis Motor Speedway with a fantastic young racer from Brazil, Nicola Giaffone. Bonjour, welcome to IMS. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you very much. How are you? Uh, always good when I'm at a racetrack. Thank you. Okay, big congratulations on winning the USF Juniors Championship. What were the best moments and memories from this season for you? Well, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, well, I believe... Uh, the first win of the season was quite expressive. I mean, for me, it was really special to know finally that we were we were going to be competitive. So it was a, a really good mark for us. And I believe that some some of the moments I've shared with my family in Coda when we won the championship, that for me is the big, the biggest picture of the year. Speaking of Coda, I love that track. What's your impression of that track? Now it's amazing. I mean, it's such a big track, long straights, high speed corners. Uh, it's amazing, amazing, really. Now, before this, you had a great season, but before the season started, what were your realistic expectations where you will finish and how many races you could win? Well, we actually didn't know. The team said, the team expected by what they saw from testing that we would be uh, quite competitive, but it actually caught us by surprise the amount of success we've had this season. And uh, I'm really grateful for the car they gave me throughout the season, I'm re- and I'm, I'm really grateful for the progress we had uh, throughout the year. Most young, talented Brazilian drivers go to Europe in pursuit of Formula Uno. What brought you to American racing scene? Well, many things actually. What, but uh, the biggest the biggest reason I came to America is the scholarship program they have here. Uh, so this helps the drivers who are champion a lot on the on their following year. So I got 70% of my budget because of uh, the scholarship. So this is huge for us in terms of financial uh, viability. So that's the main reason. But of course, my dad raced here many years ago. So I have an, uh, an, emotion, an emotional relationship with the U.S. I remember your dad very well racing here. How much is he involved in guiding and managing your career? Well, he, he in managing my career, he's very, very present. He's, uh, he, together with another person, is, uh, is the, the one who, who manages it as well. And in terms of driving, I think he interferes when he feels like he has to, but he, he gives me a lot of room to improve by myself and learn by knocking myself down sometimes so I can, I can acquire experience and learn by myself, you know, but whenever 
things get too intense, then he gets in the way and fill me in with his experience. Now, apart from the scholarship, which is so imp important, you mentioned, before you came here, I'm assuming you must have asked your dad, how is the American racing scene? What was his uh, feedback on that? Well, my father loves here. Uh, he, he grew up here, he made a life here, he had me while he was uh, racing in IndyCar, so when I, when I said I wanted to come to America, he was full hands-on, and the moment, the moment I decided, he was on board with it, and we started going after sponsorships. And what part of Brazil are you, is your family from? Sao Paulo. Oh, really interesting. <laughs> uh, a lot of great drivers have come from there, which brings me to my uh, next uh, question. Your country has produced three great world champions, Fittipaldi, PK, and Senna. Who is your favorite and why? Difficult to say, but well, two of them are from your town. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I think Ayrton is my favorite because of, of the mentality he had. This is something I admire a lot from him, the way he pushed himself and pushed the, the people around him. Okay, um, you're, uh, you're, you had a very successful karting career also. Tell us about your major achievements from karting days. And all, what I want to know is, when it comes to karting in Latin America, apart from Brazil, which other countries have a very strong uh, karting culture and good drivers? So, in terms of uh, good driving, I mean, Brazil is very strong, America is very strong, and Europe is very strong. I think these are the, for me, the, these are the the hardest places to race and uh, throughout my karting career I conquered uh, as you as you asked I conquered uh, the South America championship I was second in the Brazilian championship once and three times I was uh, state vice champions and uh, I feel like my karting career was good uh, I'm satisfied with with the with the titles I had because I didn't race as much as the other drivers I only did one championship a year so considering the, the amount of time I had in the in karting I think I was I was decent you know given uh, such success of Brazilian drivers in Formula One and a very successful here also in America how is the situation for a young talented driver to get sponsorship uh, when you're racing in Brazil from Brazilian companies oh it's very difficult especially when we are entering the world in USF juniors or USF 2000 or, or either F4 F3 in Europe because sponsors don't get much visibility so it's very difficult for you to propose something that they will like that's why getting sponsorships are so so difficult for for those who are starting what makes them really really special when you have them so it's really hard it's really hard getting sponsorships and uh, it's a big part of the sport I mean we, we can't do without them yeah no kidding okay next we have what Going from karting to single-seaters, was it smooth sailing for you or it took some time to get up to speed? I think, to be honest, it was smooth. I think I adapted myself better into open wheel than I was, uh, than I was adapted in karting, I think. I don't know, I feel, I feel better in a car than I felt in karting. So, I think for me, for me the transition was very smooth. Have you ever employed, apart from your dad, have you ever employed a driver coach? And um, if you have... What's the biggest difference you feel when you are listening to somebody who's been there and done that? Ah, experience, man. The, the amount of experience they have and knowing what works, what don't, and how they're able to control themselves when the situation doesn't go as expected. All, all these factors that come throughout the years of driving and experience, this is something that, that gets me every time and I go for them for feedback. My father, Gil uh, DeFerrin, is, is a guy uh, I like to talk to as well. He has been helping me a bit. So... And, I, and then I have my idols here, such as Scott Dixon, and uh, seeing, seeing the guys thrive when it's not easy, this is what gets me going. Okay, in 2024, next season, you are moving up to US Formula 2000. What is your goal and who do you see as your main challengers? Well, it's difficult to say. We don't, we don't know which guys I'm going to race yet. We don't have the full, the full grid set for 2024. But as this year... I, I only have one year to win the scholarship and if I don't win the scholarship the probabilities of me going back to Brazil and racing there are huge so I, I depend a lot on the scholarship so our goal needs to be to win the championship on first try because I don't know I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to have a second year here you don't have to win every race to win the championship and I think 
championship. I, I like to say that you win races by your right foot and your championship by your mind. You know, just think of the big picture, try to score in every... Uh, I mean, you have the talent to finish in the top five in every race, I think. And if you're consistent, you can beat guys who are in the second year. So I wish you all the best. Okay. Next question. Your compadre, Castro Neves, won the Indy 500 four times. This is my favorite question to guys trying to get in IndyCar racing. What is more important to you, for you, winning the 500 or winning the IndyCar championship? <laughs> uh, this is hard. This is hard. I was battling with my father about this one, but I would go with Indy 500. Absolutely, man. And let me tell you, you can win five IndyCar championships in a row. Average American fan will not know, but if you win Indy 500, you're going to White House everywhere. So, good thinking on your part. Okay, um, I understand your country, Brazil, is the largest TV market for Formula One. How popular is IndyCar racing in your country? We've had some great Brazilian drivers in IndyCar in the past, so, but we, we haven't had a competitive Brazilian driver in IndyCar for a long time, so that's why I feel like in Brazil, IndyCar popularity has been on a down, but I think that with major names coming here, such as Caio Collet maybe, and uh, other, other guys, my, the, the Brazil might get interest again in America because there are a lot of drivers coming. I mean, Kiko Porto is here, myself, Lucas Ficuri, Bruno Ribeiro just came, Nicolas Monteiro. So there's going to be a lot of Brazilian, Brazilian uh, talented people here. So I think Brazil, Brazilians' interest in IndyCar might grow back again. Now, when you were in karting in Brazil, uh, did you race with some other drivers who are now racing in Europe or very well known? I did, yes. I've raced with Pedro Clero, who was F4 champion in Brazil, and now he's racing in the, the Spanish F4. Uh, Fefo Barrichello as well. Uh, Nicolas Monteiro, who's going to run the, in Indy Pro next year. Uh, I, I've run with him in Cardi as well. And I think these are the guys I've run with the most. Great. Finally, will you tell our listeners, we have listeners all over the world, including Brazil, will you tell our listeners about uh, yourself as a person, not the driver, like what kind of other sports you like, what kind of music you like? Big fan of samba, I would, I'm guessing. <laughs> Big fan of classical music, actually. Uh, I like the old ways, I like jazz, uh, but I also like going a bit with the electronics sometimes and uh, rap when I need to get pump up, pumped up. So these are my, my types of music, but despite that, I think I'm, a, I'm an indoors guy. I like to stay at home, I like to cook, I like to be with my friends, family. This is something I praise a lot, and whenever I have time, I like to go snowboarding. This is one of my, my favorite sports, but now I'm a bit afraid because I'm afraid I might break some bones, and I like basketball a lot. I just wish I was better. And what's your favorite NBA team in the U.S.? My favorite NBA team, I think, is uh, Los Angeles Lakers. And, you know, I have to ask you, I ask, a lot of drivers are interested in basketball. In basketball, in your humble opinion, who is the GOAT, LJ or MJ? <laughs> it's hard. I like, I like LeBron James a lot because of the hustle. But you, ah, yeah, man, you, you kind of get me there. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with LeBron James, but because I admire his, I admire his longevity. I wish I, I wish I can have the amount of years in a in a competitive way in racing as he do as he is having in basketball. You said you like old classic jazz music. Do you like music from Senor Sergio Mendes, especially the to song called Mashkenada? I'm, I'm a very piano guy as well. I think Ludovico Einaudi. Uh, Piano Guys is a band I like a lot, like more from more common days for my age. Um, but I, I, I actually need to listen to very, very classical people because when I, when I say I like classic music, I'm, I think it's more r recent classic and not like the old, old classic. Good talking to you and all the best. Thank you very much. Nicola, thanks for joining F1Weekly.com. Back to you, Nasser. No, sir, good news for you. Alonso is numero uno. We had to look every which way to find out where he is on top. Machismo is on top in terms of races finished. He has finished in 301 races from 377 starts, more than any other driver. His BFF, it's amazing how these two people are connected. His BFF LCH is right behind him with 300 races finished from 332 starts. 
Kimi is third with 278 races finished, which is pretty impressive. Now we come to faces going places. Uh, Mr. Rogers, I would like to thank you for putting this press release on the front page of F1 Weekly about this young kid from Florida. I think he could be the next big American sensation. He's like 15 years old uh, from Florida. He is, him and his uh, family, they live about half an hour from Tampa where I am. And his father works in Tampa and I'm in touch with him. The kid has been testing in Europe. He's going very fast and he has joined this infinity management. And it's such a small world, you know. Um, I got this information from his dad today. And infinity management is owned by a chap by the name of Harry Soden, whom I've known for many years. And uh, they also manage uh, George Russell. So he's in good company. So the future is very bright since he is 15. He cannot race in some series in Europe. So he's going to race here in US Formula 2000. Last year, you know, in Portland, which was the final race for different series, he won, I think it was his first weekend in U.S. Formula 2000. And he has even won uh, in two series in one weekend. So this is very, very good talent. He is reminding me of somebody like uh, Robbie Gordon or A.J. Allmendinger, where you knew from the early days that this kid has uh, what Mr. Berman would say could go all the way. And let's see what happens and we wish him all the best. You know, I'm stranded here uh, right now in Maryland. His father wrote to me they are back on the 14th in Florida. So once I get back, we'll hook up and do a nice interview with Nikita. So this is definitely a face going places. Any comment on this kid, sir? Very impressed. Um, Infinity Management is a very good outfit. So, And when you have a good outfit and talent, you go very, very far. Yes. Okay, now, sir, we will look at December in racing history. December 11, 1935, Ferdinand Porsche is born. As we all know, he was originally from Austria. December 12, 1946, F1 and IndyCar great Emerson Fittipaldi born in Sao Paulo. And his dad used to be a racing journalist, interestingly. Now, on same day in 1959, Bruce McLaren drives his Cooper Climax to victory at the very first United States Grand Prix, which also took place in Florida at Sebring. And it's interesting, in 1974, when Fittipaldi won his second and final world championship, it was at the wheel of a McLaren. Interesting. Now, December 15, 2006, that day I remember getting an email from you, Clay Ragazzoni, ex-Ferrari driver and the gentleman who won the very first Long Beach Grand Prix, passed away in a road accident in Parma, Italy. December 14, 1909, Brickyard completed the great Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Another sad day in the history of motor racing, December 16, 1982, ACBC, Anthony Colin Bruce Chapman, the man who created Lotus, passed away on this date. He was 54 and died from a heart attack. Jim Clark was Chapman's first world champion. He also won driver's championship with Graham Hill, Jochen Rin, Emerson Fittipaldi, and Mario Andretti. And of course, um, this was after um, Chapman had passed away. Ayrton Senna's first victory came in 1985 in Portugal, uh, driving a JPS Lotus. And sir, this is my personal opinion. Let's see what you uh, have to say on this motorsports moment of the year, top three. Rookie winner for me, Oscar Piastri, of course. Century of Le Mans celebrated by Ferrari win. Very, very impressive. They came back and won the race. And here is something interesting. All-American boy wins at the Brickyard. Green flag flies on the speedway. Hello is on the inside of Rossi, but Ericsson has bolted. Ericsson sprints away from Joseph Newgarden and is doing what he did a year ago. The second year in a row we see him unleashing the dragon as we see almost contact between Pelot and Ferrucci. Ericsson leads out a one. Ferrucci threw a shoulder at Alex Pelot and said, don't you dare. Ferrucci tried to get a draft off Newgarden and Ericsson, but Newgarden with a monster run off turn two. Joseph Newgarden has never won the Indianapolis 500 and he's ahead on this last lap. Joseph Newgarden, is this the moment when the pain ends? By one, by one, 
the drought. Is it over for Joseph Newgarden? Or does Marcus Ericsson have something? By two. Team Penske at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Joseph Newgarden finally wins the Indianapolis 500. It's the captain's 19th win. Newgarden's first. And thanks to members of the Familia, F1 Weekly reaches 1,000 podcasts in July of this year. So, Mr. Rogers, what would be top three moments of motorsports for you? They don't have to be all from Formula One. They can be. It's up to you. There's so many. I mean, Rick Mears, Michigan, Mario Andretti, 1969, Indy 500. There's plenty. Fernando holding up LCH and winning an award in 2021. LCH winning his first championship in 2008. There are so many, Nasser. It's just too much. But for me, you know, 2005, 2006, those were big years. Very exciting. And don't get me wrong. I loved Williams in the 90s and everything. So it just continues. Just For me, I'm happy just watching the laps of the gods. There you go. Okay. Now, finally, we come to Musical Mondial. Today we have another throwback to a great moment in motor racing history. The magic of Monza is displayed by Sebastian Vettel in 2008. Youngest pole winner, youngest race winner in the rain, and all this in a Toro Rosso, previously known as Minardi. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy. Bye-bye. Good night. The lights are off on the safety car. Vettel now will have to pick his moment to hit the accelerator and get this Italian Grand Prix underway. The youngest ever Formula One pole sitter. Vettel hits it, and away we go. We're racing at Monza. Sebastian Vettel leads a Grand Prix for the first time. Certainly the heavier the rain, it would appear to favor Sebastian Vettel. He's driving beautifully at the front. He's just set his fastest first sector of the race so far, and he's simply driving away. The race leader pits. So what are they gonna put on there? The, the uh, cover said wet. It's another set. It's another set of wets going on. Seems the only uh, sensible choice, given we think there's a lot more rain coming. So Vettel then, who had uh, just over 11 seconds advantage. Here we go with the race leader. You can see the track drying out quite a bit down in this part. Under the trees around Ascari and the Lesmos is a bit still a bit wetter how much longer will these extreme wet tires last Vettel could be looking quite good here if he picks the right moment oh and Coulthard hits him bits of debris everywhere possible debris possible debris in the last corner this has been one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in almost 20 years in Formula One. A Toro Rosso with Minardi DNA coursing through its veins, driven by a 21-year-old hot shoe with a great sense of humour who just makes you love Formula One all over again, is about to take his first Grand Prix victory and become the youngest winner ever. Toro Rosso gets its moment in the sun. Sebastian Vettel is a Grand Prix winner for the first time. He's the youngest ever, and that's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in Grand Prix racing. You have won the Italian Grand Prix. You have won the Italian Grand Prix. I'm proud of you. Bravissimo. Bravissimo. Impressionante. I don't know what to say. I, I miss the word. Grazie mille. Grazie mille. Ungara, perfecto. Thanks. Wonderful race. Great job. Yeah! We have a new winner in Formula One, and his name is Sebastian Vettel.